0: You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. How many have been with us the last uh, couple weeks? One or two. Can I see? Can I see again? All right, all right, a little over half. Um so the reason I ask that is because I feel like what we've been speaking into, it's really valuable to have been tracking along. Oftentimes we try to like make a message work all on its own, and hopefully today can for those of you who haven't been following along. But I bring it up to just encourage you again, like I did last week, that if you haven't heard them, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. You can do that on our Facebook page. You can do that on YouTube. There's it on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. There's lots of places you can find it, okay? Um, But as I was getting ready for today's message, I found myself reminded of an experience I had a few years ago. We, uh, in my roofing company, we got a contract to install a very large copper roof. Uh, It was 11,000 square feet of copper. It was the most expensive uh, contract I ever did for my company and um, and when we got ready to do this roof I remember discovering that there were some very specific installation guidelines and requirements uh, you have here this what I would argue is like the best roof system you could put on a home but yet you had to follow specific guidelines even down to like what Material your fasteners were made of if you wanted to get the ultimate performance out of this product, so you could spend all the money, get this great roof, but one small you know misstep in the installation process could totally ruin it and I remember I bought this like this big manual on how to install copper and I watched all these videos and I was learning and studying and studying to make sure i didn't mess up this very valuable product for the client um, and That got me thinking just about the way God's Word works. God's Word gives us really strong instructions at times about life, about how to follow Him, about His ways, about the way things work. And it's because what He's given us in this world and in life is extremely valuable, is extremely good. And so we're going to read some scriptures this morning that speak very specifically um, into sexuality. I'm looking around the room for ages here just to give like the heads up that I will mention sex multiple times today. So I'm going to, you know, try to not get too, too graphic or anything like that, but just a heads up to adults caring for children. Uh, there, you, there you go. You've been told, okay? Um, as we go into reading these scriptures, I really want to encourage you to, like, to try and hear what's being said because we're reading what are for many difficult parts of scripture today, parts that a lot of people want to go around and pretend maybe aren't there or ignore or not look at. And I want us to really like lean in and seek to understand and hear what God is saying through them, okay? Um, So we're going to be reading where we left off last week, we were in Romans 1, we're going to start in verse 24 and then we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, Um, but it's a decent chunk here, so stick with me, okay? I'm going to pray before we read. Father, I ask that uh, you would give us ears to hear what you're saying. And God, where there's things in it that may be hard to hear or difficult, God, I ask that you would uh, show us your beauty and your goodness and your kindness to us that's in it, that we would catch it. In Jesus' name, can I get an amen? Amen. All right, here we go, guys. Uh, Starting in verse 24, Romans 1 says this. And actually, sorry, I'm going to give you context because if you weren't here last week, this is basically the result of what happens when we suppress the obvious truth of God that's made known to us through nature, okay? That's what, what Paul is explaining here. Uh, he says this, after that suppression of the truth, etc., therefore God also gave them up to, the, to uncleanness. And the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned for their in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. Proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Important part here, we're going into chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I want you to, when you hear that, I don't want you to just hear judgment of others. It's really important what Paul says in those first verses of chapter 2. It's actually supposed to be heard as a self-assessment. He's not saying, look at all these people doing all this stuff. He actually says, listen, if you are pointing the finger in judgment, guess what? You're pointing it right back at yourself. Because we all do this stuff. We all have this manifest in our lives through the suppression of God's truth in in different ways. And he encourages us to to hear of the kindness and the goodness of God. It's the kindness and the goodness of God that leads to repentance, that actually leads to change. All right? I'm going to read one more section here. 1 Corinthians 6, starting halfway through verse 13, Paul says. The body however is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall then uh, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." And those two large chunks of scripture, a lot of heavy stuff in them. But what I wanted us to see and to catch is that when Paul argues for a particular sex ethic in Scripture, in his words to the churches, in both, he anchors them in the value of our bodies. At the beginning of what we first read in Romans, he talks about how we are given over to dishonor our bodies. At the end of the scripture we just read, he encourages people following Jesus to honor God with their bodies. That we can actually use this body to bring honor to God. That we can honor the body itself and what we do with it. And see, the way this connects to what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is we've been looking at that um, scripture teaches us that God made this world and he made it good. And we looked in in, uh, Psalm 19 that talks about how the creation itself actually speaks of God's glory. It points to his handiwork. We see his design and his purpose and his intention and his wisdom all throughout the created order. And then the the psalm switches to talking about the goodness of God's law, and it talks about it in these endearing terms. And the idea is, is that God's law, what we call morality, is actually rooted in a high view of nature, a high view of the way the world's created. And that there is a way to live in this world, a way to be human, a way to do life that actually fits with the design of God for how our bodies work, for how nature itself works. And that's a good thing. Oftentimes, God's commands are viewed as you know, restrictive and oppressive, but actually they're to lead us into his ways that is for our good, for our flourishing as people. But oftentimes we've bought into this idea that you have your factual realm and your value realm and they're they're split apart from each other. The facts are those objective truths that we all agree upon publicly. Values are subjective and personal and you shouldn't be, you know, telling anybody else how to do life. But actually these values that the Lord teaches us through Scripture are about how life in this world works. We saw last week about how that same thinking leads to this and this whole divide between your body and your personhood, right? We looked at the hot topic of abortion last week and saw how, in many ways, science all agrees that this, this baby in the womb is a person, I mean, is a human from conception. But arguing that, that it's still okay to do away with it because it's not a person yet. Right? And we have this new category of human non-persons that we've developed separating the two it's a fragmented view it's dualistic in nature and and we see again and again in the scriptures the morality is rooted in nature it holds the two together it holds together the way things are in the real world with how we're called to live according to God's word are you with me What I, what I hope for us to see in all of this is that God's word actually portray, portrays a very high view of your body. It's sacredness, it's dignity, it's worth. And what we do with our bodies actually really matters. Oftentimes we try to separate who we are from our body. We actually get the idea that I'm, I am more who I feel I am and what I think I am than what I Actually, I'm in here, but the, the scripture invites us into an integrated, holistic experience of being human. Or who we know ourselves to be, and what our body teaches us of ourselves are united and together and held together as one. The reality is, without your you can't separate yourself from your body. You realize that? You have no human experience apart from this body. You have no consciousness No expression whatsoever without this physical body. Who you are as a person in your mind, in your emotions, in your soul, in your will, all that stuff, finds its manifestation and expression in the physical realm through your body. Your body is not extrinsic, external to who you are. It is an intrinsic part of who you are. Are you with me? I know we're talking big ideas. And here's the the idea that Paul's communicating to us, is that when we suppress the truth about God that is clearly seen in nature, tragically, we fall away from the good and glorious design that God has purposed for our lives. And we talk so strongly, and Scripture does so strongly, about sin and broken manifestations of, of expressing our humanity because it matters so deeply to Him what we do how we act, how we function, what we do with our bodies. My desire today is to actually look at how it's actually a high view of the body and a high view of nature that the biblical sex ethic is rooted in. Are you with me? All right. I mean, I thought we start talking about sex, everybody would get all excited and it would be, you know, but it's just silence. Uh, You know, there's this common misconception about what scripture has to say about sex, that it has a low view of sex, that it's sexually restrictive, that it's just conservative and traditional. Well, I would ask you, have you ever read the Song of Solomon? Anybody ever read it in here? Okay, this, this, this book is very sensual and explicit and poetic and celebratory in how it speaks of sex. It's actually like in the English translation, we get really watered down version of what it says. Because a lot of translators, I think, are like blushing. Like, uh, I can't write it that way. Let's, you know, they're, they're looking for different ways to say it. But when you actually like dig into the original language and translation, it's very descriptive. And it's beautiful and it celebrates the gift, the glorious good gift that sex is. Bible has a very high view. Sex built on a high view of nature and a high view of the body. And so, as we look through this content today, I want to give you four headings to think about it through, and then we'll work our way through. Okay? The revolution, the language, the science, and the beauty. So, first is the revolution. Anybody ever heard the phrase "the sexual revolution"? Right? You, you familiar with that idea? Now, most of us, when we hear that term, we think of an era, you know, around Woodstock in the 60s, correct? you guys know what I'm talking about? And, and we're still living in the, the aftermath or the continuation of that revelation in present day. From the 60s to now, we are in this so-called sexual revolution. But there's also another sexual revolution that I would like us to look at today, and it happened in the first century, and the, and the kind of main proponents of it were the Jesus followers, the Christian church. And, um, you know, when we compare them, um, the sex ethic of the 60s and to today would essentially say this. You should have as much sex as you want with whoever you want to. Sex is just a piece of a body touching a piece of another body. Sound familiar? You with me? I want to ask that question. This is how I would pre- present to you or we can pull from Scripture. Sex is a mysteriously profound spiritual and physical activity. It ought to be celebrated and freely enjoyed as a gloriously good gift from God between one man and one woman committed to each other for life. And the fruit of these two views, we can, we can look at it. We can see it. We can examine it. We can consider it. You can look right now, like I've read a lot of articles in uh, current magazines interviewing young adults about their experience of the the culture, the hookup culture that is common today. You know, we could point to all sorts of things, but a a great example is, is, you know, the apps that exist to just go find somebody, meet up and, and do your thing. There's all sorts of it, right? But when you listen to what they say, they're talking about you know, to have this good experience, you need to learn to just keep it physical. Don't get too emotionally attached, right? But a lot of the time, what you start to hear is testimonies of people finding that unfulfilling. I've read stuff in, like, men's magazines. A man saying, I'm tired of being characterized as just this person who wants nothing more than the physical act. I'm looking for greater depth. Because that, that, that idea that it's just two bodies touching one another sells people short. There's a professor from a university in the States named Ann Maloney, and she's quoted saying this, it is no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and the birth control pill. Because, because we're being told that you just go have as much as you want and just take this pill to take care of you know not getting pregnant, and, and then they're, they're coming up short. There's depression that follows. Now, when we think about this in terms of revolution, I want us to go to first century, okay? Winding back here, 2,000 years. And I'm not going to go into detail on this because it's brutal, okay? Honestly, you can go study it and read it yourself. But the, the sex ethic of the Roman culture was brutal. Put it that way. And, and I don't want to read the details of it because I actually think there's some people who, in hearing some of the reports that you can find and read about it, would find it traumatic. And so I'll leave it at this that, that it, was, um, it was all about power and personal pleasure, it was very oppressive. It was powerful men having it with whoever, whenever they wanted. That was the ethic. So when the Christian sex ethic came in that said this is meant to be in a lifelong committed marriage between one man and one woman for all their life, this elevated. It elevated and protected women. It elevated and protected children. It elevated and protected the poor. It elevated and protected even slaves. And it said to every single human being, because you are created by the creator God, your body has dignity and it has worth and it is not my property and my possession to do with whatever I want. And it was common in that culture for men to have their wives who they were married to for, for status, for procreation, but they had a ton of other relationships with whoever they wanted to for their pleasure. But this ethic said, no, you bring all of that into one place with one person. And there's a purpose for it. In many ways, it was revolutionary. I would say that the Christian church were the pioneers of consensual sex. And do you know that some of the early martyrs in the church were brave women who came into the church and were convinced of their worth and dignity, that when told that it was required of them to do certain things sexually, they said no. They said, I will not. And they went to their death for it. Because they believed in the dignity of their body. And the beauty of what sex was supposed to be. They said no. And it was part of this, this sex ethic was part of what made the church actually so popular to the masses. Because you see, there there was a concentrated, powerful few up at the top who did whatever they want to the rest. And the church flipped that and said, no, you're all kings, you're all priests, you're all royalty, you're all in the image of God. And you are worthy of respect and dignity and honor It was beautiful it was revolutionary so the language i said right language of sex it's a very untrue and low view to say that it is merely two parts of two bodies touching one another nothing more than that it's a very low view the truth is what we do with our body matters You realize we have this thing that we call body language, right? You guys with me? Body language, right? We communicate things. We send messages to one another with our bodies. If I smile at you or if I give you an evil, mean glare, we're sending a message just with the very look on my face and in my eyes. I know i got to work on that, dear. But we communicate, right? A handshake or a punch to the face. They're going to communicate different messages. A hug or a kiss. They're going to communicate a different level of connection. Well, guess what? Sex communicates another level of connection. It sends the most intimate message that we can send with our bodies. Can I get an amen? It's a good thing, guys. Okay? It's a wonderful, good thing in its rightful place. It's a quote from Tim Keller. He said it better than I could, so I'm just going to read what he said. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. When we have sex outside of marriage, we are essentially lying with our bodies. Our actions are saying that we are united on all levels when in reality we are not. We are contradicting ourselves. We are putting on an act. We are being dishonest. We're saying something with our bodies. And unless it's in this committed Covenant relationship between one man and one woman, we're saying something different than what God intended the act of sex to say, to communicate. You realize that the very first mention of sex in scripture uses this Hebrew word yada. Adam knew, that's the Yadah work, Adam knew Eve. It's very intentional use and choice to put that word in there. Because the act of having sex is actually this fully knowing of the other person, a fully giving, a fully receiving of one another. It's the most intimate knowing that we can have. And it happening between two people physically is to be expressing what's supposed to be happening on an emotional level, on a financial level, on an on a all-of-life level. And it's a beautiful thing. And so we talk about the science, the science of sex. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, what we read, Paul makes a statement when he's, he's encouraging the people, like, don't just be going out and connecting with prostitutes. very common in that day and age. He says, don't you know that you become one flesh with her? He's quoting back to what Genesis says, that there's this one flesh, this unity that happens through it. He says, don't you know that? Then he makes this statement where he says, whoever sins sexually, and this is why the Bible is so loud about this topic, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So it's not just actually you're you're deviating away from God, you're deviating away from what your body was intended for. Now, to get into those statements, I want us to just consider the science. Today, studies continue to uncover these truths. And if you pick up most books nowadays on the topic of sex, you're going to hear about these hormones oxytocin and vasopressin, okay? These are the hormones that are released in a woman and in a man's body when having sex. A woman releases oxytocin. The man's body releases vasopressin. Both of these hormones are released during the act of sex. And what they do is they actually bond you to the person you're with. When a mother has a baby born, oxytocin is released in her body, and she experiences this profound connection to the child. The same hormone is released when two people are having sex together. There's a deep bond that happens chemically, hormonally, in our bodies. Psychologists and sex therapists call them the bonding hormones, the connection chemicals. Create attachment. Attachment. Teresa Crenshaw, she's a sex therapist, and she calls what these hormones do to us when we have sex an involuntary chemical commitment. Another author named Lauren Winner, she's the author of a book called Real Sex. She says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not? So, God has written into the way our bodies work when we engage in this most wonderful, glorious, beautiful gift from Him deep bonding and connection, deep attachment to one another. And this this attachment, this bond that it creates, is beautiful in the context of marriage. Outside of that context, it's painful. It's the root of great pain. It's a coming together and a tearing apart, and a coming together and a tearing apart. Or when you bring another person into the mix of your sexual expression of your life, it taints it. The Bible uses the word impurity again and again and again for a reason. You know, when I was doing that copper roof, I mentioned at the beginning of the the message, I learned how to solder. And what soldering is, is essentially welding two pieces of copper together. And what you have to do when you solder is you have to thoroughly clean the copper. Because if it's not clean, you don't get the bond. And there's something in that 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 just speaks to this, that there is something about that that committed union between two people that creates something absolutely beautiful. I told you we're going to talk about the beauty. The beauty of sex. See, because when it's in the context that God designed it to be in, it actually perpetuates increasing connection, increasing attachment to one another. It solidifies our commitment and our covenant and our union. It's a beautiful, good thing. In many ways, the gospel itself is declared and displayed in the earth through two committed people making love to one another. Through this lifelong commitment, through this covenant marriage. Because, you see, God is a God who keeps his covenant. To his people. He says, I'm committed to you. I'm there for you. I give you everything I have. Right? That is, that is the message of the cross. That Jesus took on himself everything, that we have everything we deserve so that we could get everything he has and everything he deserves. There's this profound union, and Paul's referencing it in that 1 Corinthians 6. He keeps going back and forth between this, going like, why do you do this? Don't you know that you're Christ? Your body's not your own. Your body belongs to him. And and he's referencing back and forth between these pictures. In Ephesians 5, he says that marriage is actually displaying in the world the relationship between Jesus and his church. And when practiced according to the biblical ethic... It displays commitment. It displays this ever-increasing bond and connection. It's vulnerable and naked. There's a trust and a security that is solidified in it. You don't run off. There's a giving, a generous giving and receiving. Even our intimacy, it produces fruit. There's conception. New life comes from this love. Even in our differences, the differences between men and women. There's something displayed. Because, you know, see, God is other than us. We are like him, but he is also completely other than us. Holy. Right? And there's something in the differences between a man and a woman learning how to come together and do life together in intimacy that actually displays our relationship with God. What I've learned in in our marriage is that it's actually our differences that help develop true intimacy. It's really easy to get along with somebody who thinks like you, talks like you, sees everything the same as you. But it's in our differences that are inherent, intrinsic to who we are, that we actually learn this beautiful expression of love. And there's a great delight and a great pleasure that comes from it. And that delight and that pleasure, guys, is just a shadow of what's to come in our relationship with the Lord. Jesus actually says that, like, in the age to come, we won't even be given in marriage anymore. It won't be required because we will have the real deal, the true thing with him you realize how good this thing is how amazing how pleasurable how delightful is just a shadow of what's to come and and my my hope in looking at this stuff last few weeks and this today is that i want us to see that when scripture gives us these commands it's not just saying don't do that and giving us these arbitrary rules for no reason it actually he's anchoring these things in a high view of the body, a high view of nature. Because there's a way things work. There's a way things work best. And it's not just this simple, you know, wagging the finger, no, you shouldn't. It's like, don't you see what I've prepared for you? The table, like Telsey showed us at the beginning, right? The feast that God has prepared for us is something beautiful. It's something good. And when, and when approached rightly, when approached in the way that's accord, according with the design. It's beautiful. It's good. It's to be celebrated. There's whole books in the Bible written about it. You remember it said in what we read from Romans, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to change, to, to, to find and try a new way, his way. Because it's good. Because it's good. And I realize that when we talk about a message like this, I would hope and I would assume that everybody in the room can relate on some level to the struggle that it is to, 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 to channel this sexual energy toward the, 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 the place that God intended it to be manifest I can see some young people cringing in the room when I say that. it It is beautiful. And I feel it's important to talk about because I want particularly you young people to know the beauty of what God has prepared for you, made you for. But I know that when we look at this, all of us can relate to the struggle. I know I can relate to the struggle, guys. I've had throughout... huge portion of my life struggles with pornography. And I know that there's other men in the room or women in the room who can relate to that. And the, the struggle is real. But what I have found myself is that just the pure resistance hasn't been as powerful as beginning to understand the purpose for which God gave me a sex drive. The purpose for which God gave me a sex drive is to motivate me towards intimacy. Real intimacy, not the dehumanizing version that is rampant and available in the world. And my hope in talking about this today is that as we see the beauty of what God has created, what God offers, what God has given, that it inspires us. I don't want anybody walking away from today with this like heavy burden of shame and guilt and condemnation if you've not been walking it out perfectly. But know that there is a beautiful context that he invites us into. I find it really interesting that, again, what is some of the more offensive, controversial verses in Scripture preceded what we read in 1 Corinthians 6 and I want us to look at it because it's also really hopeful. Paul says this. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this though. And that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, guys, we all come to the Lord with our stuff. We all journey with the Lord with our stuff. This is not about, like, slap you up, up, upside the head and get it together. It's about an invitation to beauty. An invitation to the glorious good that God has offered us. The table he set. So as I think, like, we're going to actually approach the Lord's table here. And we're going to receive communion. I think to myself, I just have a sense, like, God wants to offer freedom in a new way to us today. And all of us come to that in regard to this part of our lives with different stuff and different struggles. For some, it may be the the actual um, desire to just say no and say goodbye to pornography. For some, it may be the need of ending a certain relationship or the way it's functioned. For others, you maybe have not heard this before in regard to this, but for others, it may be you're married and God wants to invite you into a greater degree of freedom and liberty regarding sexual expression in your marriage. That where you have felt restrained and constricted, he says, oh, there's I got more for you. There's freedom, there's wholeness, and there's beauty on offer to all of us in what God has designed. So this is one where when we think on this topic, I'm not going to say to you, get these elements, come grab, you know, some bread and the cup. And now turn to your neighbor and, you know, we're not, we're not going to do that. You're, you're free to if you feel there's someone you trust and you need to share and you need to talk. But I want to encourage you to, like, just bring yourself before the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to give myself wholly to you. Fully to you, fully surrender to you and your ways. I want all that you have for me. And I'm going to give all that I am to you again today. Can we do that? It's not, it's, and you know, even when I ask that question, I'm just struck with it's not something we can do on our own. I need Him. I need Him. Like Shar was encouraging us during worship to surrender all we are. All we are every aspect of our life for his kingdom's cause. All right, well, I think we're, we're almost there. But as we just get ready to receive, receive this, to practice what the Lord instructed us, I want you to just even, just take the cup in your hand and actually let your heart and your mind fix on that which it represents. Jesus said that we we drink of this cup which is the blood that was shed for the new covenant for the remission of sin. It means that whatever we've done, however we've sinned, that we can be washed, that we can be clean, that we can be completely forgiven. That his blood shed was the price paid in full for our forgiveness to be exercise toward us and god remain just because the punishment was taken in full on him so it didn't have to be upon us so whatever you may be carrying or thinking about as we receive this today i want you to know that the blood of jesus is more than enough to wash to cleanse So, Jesus, we ask that you would make it real to us, make real in our hearts the reality of what you did and what you accomplished upon the cross. Take and drink Jesus' blood shed for you. said that this was his body given for us. It was whipped. It was torn. And what's beautiful is that in his body, in his physical body, he displayed to us God's way, God's kingdom. The actual way that it looks and means to be fully human was displayed to us in the body of Jesus, the word made flesh. So Jesus, today we thank you for your body that was given for us. Thank you for listening to the Lifetree Church Sermon of the Week. At Lifetree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.